0: Hi there, Maya, and welcome to the Maxim Institute podcast. My name is Jason and I'm the communications manager at Maxim Institute. We've been through two difficult years dealing with COVID-19 and now we're seeing the economic effects. Interest rates are rising and the housing market is volatile. The cost of living has soared and many must choose which bills they do or don't pay. Inflation is at a 30-year high and the stock market is in bear territory recession is predicted for the end of the year. How long might this uncertainty last? What impact do global trends have? How best can we navigate it? This podcast is a recording of our special event, The New Economic Normal, featuring Brad Olson in conversation with our executive director, Tim Wilson. At this event, Brad offers insight into where the economy is and where it might be going and takes questions from those attending. Brad is Principal Economist and Director at Infometrics and is one of New Zealand's leading economic commentators. He's the only economist to predict our current 7.3% inflation rate. Brad is passionate about using economics to make better informed decisions and can communicate complex and detailed trends in simple, relatable and helpful manner. With extensive networks across New Zealand's business, media, community and social sectors, Brad often brings together a variety of views, data and emerging trends to inform advice and analysis to key decision makers across New Zealand. Now let's hear from Brad.
1: What I guess I want to outline is is really for New Zealand over the last few years, we've responded to COVID in a very different way uh, than most other crises. And it means that we've emerged with a very different economy. But importantly as well, we've got a number of challenges that are starting to build up, uh, you know, the likes of the record high inflation and similar um, the the challenges around the global workforce uh, and around geopolitics. But where I do want to start, only because it's fresh in my mind and probably fresh in many people's given uh, news out today, is the uh, New Zealand housing market. And for the first time in a decade, we're seeing a decline in house prices. Now, trust me, as someone uh, who would eventually like to buy a house, that's a little bit sort of music to my ears, but also uh, a huge change for an economy that generally expects to see House prices continue to rise and rise and rise like they've done uh, over previous decades. For the first time in a year, house prices are in uh, actual decline. They've, they're, they're down from where they were uh, 12 months ago, and they've now sustained, I think, seven months of cumulative drops. Uh, the number of houses that are available for sale are high. People aren't able to make the, the sales that they want to, um, in large part because of where interest rates are now sitting the amount of money that you could get back uh, last year at a 2.2% mortgage rate uh, was a lot more than what you might get if you go to the bank now at sort of 5.4 odd percent. And that means that buyers, if they're out there, uh, they don't have the same cash that they had last year and they just can't make those bigger commitments on houses that a lot of people are looking for. Uh, because of that and, and because those uh, buyers aren't able to leverage anymore from the bank, Either there's no deal to be done or sellers are having to adjust their expectations uh, when it comes to house prices quite significantly. Now, if you're uh, someone who's looking to sell your house or you're looking at the numbers and seeing your house price drop, that generally means that people aren't feeling quite as flush. If you needed to liquidate your house tomorrow, uh, you don't have quite as much money, uh, if you will, or certainly not on paper. And so we're starting to see the ramifications there uh, with high inflation and high interest rates starting to bite when it comes to consumer spending, uh, down 0.2% in July. And so after two and a half years of a really strong response, really, in the economy, but really coming through from the sugar hit uh, forced on us by government, we now find ourselves in a much more uncomfortable economic position with the pandemic still raging, but other uh, uh, factors starting to hit us. The major one in my mind and the major challenge that New Zealand faces uh, over the next uh, two to three years in the short term is around inflation, uh, because it does have such huge implications for people's lives and for how much people are able and willing to spend But we know as well uh, that it's not something that New Zealanders or the rest of the world is particularly well versed in. In fact, at university, I think I was lucky to spend two weeks uh, as a training economist uh, to understand what inflation was all about. Uh, We were told that was the beast that we killed back in the 70s and 80s, and there was no need to be too worried about it anymore because it was gone. Well, it has very much uh, risen back, uh, and it's now, in my mind, one of the greatest economic challenges that we face. The last time inflation was this high back in uh, the early 1990s, not only was I not even born, uh, but my parents had only just started dating. So it's been a while when it comes to inflation. And I think the real challenge that we face there is that as much as we talk about the likes of 7.3% and similar the distributional impacts that inflation has on your average Kiwi household is incredibly damaging. Uh, We know that the average household over the last 12 months is uh, seeing price increases of anywhere between $70 and $250 extra a week just for the essentials. At the same time, the average New Zealand households also only earned an extra $90 a week uh, before tax. And so the ability to actually make ends meet, particularly for those who are already doing it tough uh, when it comes to filling up the car and and getting to work and school, to just putting the basics on the table uh, and making sure there's a a safe, comfortable roof above people's heads, all of that is now very much struggle street for a, a number of Kiwis that haven't been in that position before. So we have some real difficulties there where effectively uh, we're trying to do this much work, but we've got this many people and that much resource. And that gap is inflationary. We're paying a lot more uh, for a lot less. That bang for buck has gone down considerably. And the difficulties, as we see it, is that there are some in society like some myself included, who are not going to comfortably go through it, but we can adjust our spending. I don't have to go out, uh, you know, for that dinner on the weekend with friends. I can choose not to drive out uh, to the beach, uh, you know, for a swim on the weekend. There are fa- families, though, who are, you know, living hand-to-mouth. They have to uh, work as hard as possible just to barely make uh, ends meet, and things have become so much more difficult. And, and it sort of uh, speaks to the difficulty I think we're going to have this year as an economy about how do we grow when realistically every dollar we're adding back into the economy isn't giving us a dollar of growth or a dollar of additional spending. It's giving us a, a bunch more inflation and, and pressure on an economy that's already stretched. I say that because we know there are big changes as well that have come through uh, for the New Zealand labour market. Uh, the differences uh, in, in recent times very much around COVID-19 and the fact that uh, you know sick leave doesn't really cut it anymore. Even if you're lucky to get 10 days, well, if seven of those odd are, are taken up with uh, COVID isolation, you only have to be hit with the flu once and, and, and that's you gone for the year. We know uh, because of that, 100,000 New Zealanders each and every day have been unable to go to work with COVID or who are isolating And in fact, when you add in the flu and all the other seasonal illnesses, we know that the number of New Zealanders off work because they're sick has increased 40% from a year before. So the disruptions that provides to an economy that, again, is already bursting at the seams uh, is enormous. And, And this plays out at a very practical level. I was talking to a business the other day, uh, they you know have got 40, 50 staff. Consistently, a quarter of their team each and every day is not able to perform, and that means when they are eventually able to fill their order for their their client, you know, a good four, five weeks late, and they're trying to get it to the transport company to move it out to where the client is. Well, the tra- transport company's team are also sickened so the delays continue to push on, and again, it's an economy uh, at the moment which is under a huge amount of stress. It comes at a time that we want to do a lot more work, but uh, we're seeing some real changes in where people are doing work and what sort of work they're doing. In fact, the fact that we can do this on a Zoom call tonight means that people are thinking about uh, operating in different ways. If I was doing this in Wellington, I'd be set up uh, on my ironing board, uh, you know, uh, wearing probably, you know, uh, just some some shorts or something underneath because we're all able to operate in that uh, different way. In fact, I could go back home uh, or be in a camper van somewhere out in the middle of the upper as long as I've got uh, internet coverage. And so the way that New Zealanders are working when and where we're working uh, has changed considerably. And because of it also where New Zealanders are locating themselves has shifted. In fact, by our estimates, the working from home push that we've seen through COVID-19 has probably accelerated the number of people who are not going into the office by about eight years from where it was otherwise. And because of that, we're seeing uh, people who are not focusing as much on our urban centres. Our CBDs across the country are not in the same position. There's not as much spending because there's not as many people. Now that gives some great opportunities to New Zealand's regional areas. We've seen a huge push into the provinces. And in fact, last year for the first time in probably 200 years, Auckland's population declined rather than grew. And we saw a lot more people starting to head into those provincial uh, areas. That's a challenge, though, as well, when as good as this is, as good as and and fun as it is to talk to you, uh, you know, via a microphone and a camera, all day, every day is a very isolating experience. We're not having the same social interactions that New Zealanders are accustomed to. We're not able to get some of the same gains of being in the office to spitball ideas uh, and, and, and get things going. And of course, those opportunities for flexible work aren't available to everyone. They're great if you want to operate from an office environment, um, but I'm yet to be able to order a pie and a coffee uh, via a Zoom call. So uh, that challenge is, is, is difficult. Wider than that, though, the ability to work wherever and whenever you want is being taken a little bit too seriously by some people, uh, meaning that New Zealand for the first time in a generation uh, is seeing a brain drain. Uh, I think numbers out today suggesting over 11,000 more people left New Zealand in the last 12 months than came in, with half of that being just 20 to 29-year-olds. And so it's New Zealand's young talent uh, that we're losing. Some of that makes sense. We know that there was going to be a lot of pent-up demand for people wanting to go on the OE and wanting to think about new opportunities after two and a half years of a pandemic. They didn't leave over those last two and a half years because, well, why would you? Fortress New Zealand was a fantastic way and a fantastic place to live out the pandemic while it was raging. But now that borders have reopened, we've started to look further afield. The worry at the moment, actually, is when we look through the numbers, there's a a slightly uh, more normal number of New Zealanders leaving the country. That's to be expected. It's just that we're not able to bring anyone in. So we always have a brain drain, but we normally have a brain gain to offset it. That brain gain is no more. And it really does reinforce that at a time when we want more workers, when we've got a lot of people off sick, when we're struggling to even achieve current work, let alone thinking about growth, that the fact that we can't attract people into New Zealand and we've had to resort to Shortland Street as our method of trying to encourage nurses into the sector, well, we've got some uh, challenges coming through. Part of that makes sense. We reopened later than most of the rest of the world. Everyone else got the hop on us, got talent quicker than we could. But New Zealand's also sent a very strong message in recent times that we don't want People from overseas to come in. Uh, We want to go it alone. And that story and view has been taken up strongly globally uh, for people going, well, I won't even think about you anymore. And the difficulty then means that instead of, I think, three and a half thousand um, different visa uh, introductions that the government was expecting over the first month of of reopened borders, they've had less than, uh, I think, only a few hundred. And so that difficulty of how do we resource ourselves as an economy, how do we actually provide those opportunities um, is immense. That's not to say that we don't have any talent left in New Zealand. It's that we aren't uh, or haven't been able to fully connect people. We know there are still over 100,000 people on a job seeker benefit across the country who are very keen to work, uh, but they don't necessarily have the right skills. They're not fully work ready. They might not have the transport Uh, or other supports to be able to get back into employment and business at the moment with such high cost pressures are also unwilling to make those larger investments to get people in the door because of the uncertainty that still remains about not only the pandemic but also the risk of a shadow recession that's emerging And it suggests that we really need to continue to focus on how do we help those New Zealanders who are in a harder position? How do we ensure that although the Māori unemployment rate has come down, it still sits at something like double uh, the national average? How do we help uh, the numerous numbers of women and young people who lost their jobs at the start of the pandemic, particularly in the tourism sector, that haven't been able to immediately re-go into their positions? And importantly, how do we ensure that as we move forward, there are those opportunities so that people can take a risk, uh, can figure out a new way of working uh, and build a sustainable lifestyle around it? Because those challenges, the pricing pressures that people are facing uh, are enormous. Part of this, in my mind, comes down to housing, uh, which presents a huge challenge for the country, but also a long-term opportunity. In terms of the challenge, well, we know just how expensive it is to buy Uh, at the moment, interest rates having risen considerably to try and influence inflation, but also a view, uh, if you will, that it's going to take a while to turn things around. It's costing you 20% more now to build a house across the country, which means that in, in time... People aren't going to be quite as keen to build a house if you're going to have to pay 20% more to build it and earn 10% less when you eventually sell that new house. And so the difficulty of actually resourcing our growth is, uh, is really coming back yet again uh, after a period of, of high building. We know, though, that even with uh, greater levels of house prices dropping at the moment, the incredible buildup uh, in recent times still puts housing out of reach of many In fact, even by the lowest point that house prices are expected to get to in 2023, Treasury expects that house prices will still be 32% higher than pre-pandemic levels. At the same time, inflation will have increased 17%, people's wages 18%. Wherever you were at the start of 2022, you will have taken one step forward with your income and taken that same step backwards with inflation. The house has still taken two more further steps ahead. And so the difficulties we see there are enormous. Again, though, the difficulty or the, the challenge is probably more so in the 26 odd thousand New Zealand households who can't put a roof over their head. Even the government hasn't seen fit to be able to help them, uh, with nearly 500 additional people homeless and living in their own cars. Now, far from being just an economic challenge, uh, we see real social division starting to, to come by. If you're, a young, if you're a young Kiwi family that is in that position, you don't have a good night's sleep. If you don't look, think the kids are being looked after, if you're not warm and comfortable, you're going to be a rubbish person the next day. You're not going to be uh, particularly helpful when it comes to going into the office because you haven't had those uh, strong foundations that many of us uh, do have and, and often take for granted. And so my worry uh, looking forward is that people who are in that position, uh, we really are, are still missing out in terms of what we're doing to help them. What do we need to do? Well, we have to keep that focus on how do we increase the number of houses. It is sort of a bit of a numbers game. If we've got 26,000 people who need a house, we obviously don't have enough of them. Otherwise, they would have been put somewhere. And so a need to develop that need to invest properly in our network infrastructure so that we can build more houses at pace and with the right cost is going to be huge. The other worry, and I guess the broader challenge for New Zealand, but also an increasing opportunity out of necessity, is if we zoom out for a moment, the New Zealand economy, as strong as it is and as important as the team of 5 million have been over the last few years, we pale in comparison to the team of 8 billion across the world geopolitical issues are rising now more than ever. We know that the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, has been huge in terms of what's been happening, the challenges that we face, but also the difficulties that we see when it comes to our, our global food supply. And what we see, uh, as much as we focused on oil prices at the uh, over the last few months, one of the real crises has come about in food oil prices. of the world's sunflower oil uh, originally before the Russian invasion came out of uh, the Russia and and Ukraine area. That all has closed up, sending food prices soaring even higher. But in more recent times, we've seen a shift in in, in the way that the globe operates to uh, using uh, economic challenges and, and turning them into security threats or security risks. Indonesia, one of the largest providers in the world uh, of palm oil, a substitute for that sunflower oil I was just talking about, well, a few months back, they had a look at prices globally and said, this stuff's way too expensive for our own people, we're going to ban exports, uh, and we're going to close off our our export channels, and we're going to keep it here locally. A few weeks after that, Malaysia, the largest provider of chicken in the world, did the same thing, said, well, this is way too expensive locally, we're going to ban exports and keep it here. A few weeks after that, Australia did the same with coal. And so in a time when New Zealand has to recognise that we are a small island nation at the bottom of the South Pacific that relies on trade, if the rest of the world isn't able to trade in the same way, we are in a vulnerable position. We know uh, that trying to get stuff here and get it out of the country has been difficult. But some good news shipping prices are only five times more expensive than what they were pre-pandemic. Now, that's slightly better than the seven to eight times they were earlier. Um, And as an economist who, as you heard from Tim, is part of the dismal science, I'll take about any good news I can get. But two and a half years into the pandemic and still five times more expensive to move a a 40-foot shipping container across the world suggests that things aren't going to become particularly easy anytime soon. And so the challenge that's posed then is how does New Zealand operate if the rest of the world is starting to close their doors more and more and we want to make sure that they're open for trade and importantly open so that we can import the goods that we don't make here uh, and need to produce more of. The opportunity, though, I think, is something that New Zealand really can grasp, and that's twofold. One is thinking about our supply chains. How do we protect that domestically? And what we have seen in recent times is that businesses are putting their money where their mouths are and starting to secure their own supply chains with a high number of warehouses being built across the country. If you're worried about it being maybe six weeks, maybe six months until your next shipment arrives, well, you want to have a little bit more stock on hand that you can hold over, and we've started to see more of that. Importantly, we've also seen more manufacturing. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're about to start building cars like we did back in the 80s, but we are starting to see a greater level of manufacturing of various widgets uh, so that people aren't having to wait for overseas production to come in at an exorbitant price and at an uncertain time and instead able to keep their local activity going. And so New Zealand's ability to provide more advanced manufacturing jobs, become more productive, start working a lot smarter, not uh, so much harder is a real advantage as we head forward. The other area, though, is looking at how uh, New Zealand can continue to navigate what is an increasingly uncertain world. Uh, tensions in the Solomon Islands this year, the fact that Sri Lanka has gone from one of the strongest uh, Asian economies to uh, you know completely not, the fact that you've got missiles still being fired into the Taiwan Strait, uh, and you know actual real threats of nuclear war for the first time since the sixties really should uh, start to sing some alarm, alarm bells. New Zealand, though, has uh, still maintains that forthright view that we have an independent foreign policy. Uh, we sort of uh, take it with a straight bat. We, we are very convinced by our ability to remain uh, operational on the world stage. I think a real advantage there in terms of New Zealand's ability to continue to trade, to continue to think about our global partners uh, and hopefully navigate the world so that it's as peaceful as we can possibly achieve it to be. There's a huge amount of disruption That we see globally. There's a huge uh, amount of of difficulty and challenge. And for New Zealand, that means that 2022 and into the future is going to be more difficult to achieve growth. And the growth that we do achieve will be uh, more expensive as we go forward. We've got some strong foundations, though. We've started through this pandemic uh, with better outcomes than many other parts of the world. We reacted differently this time. We were proactive. We tried to keep people in jobs, uh, but we have paid a significant price on the credit card for that that future generations are going to have to focus on. We've got difficulties uh, that, that have come back that we parked for a few years while the pandemic was uh, there. The fact that we're still sending kids away uh, from school without the ability to do math. The fact that more are truant, that we're still not uh, actually getting productivity growth. The fact that some of our pipes and, and the bones, literal bones of our cities are breaking around us suggests that there is a lot more uh, that can be done and must be done to put New Zealand in the place uh, that we need to get it to. But I'm still confident about our future because, despite all of those challenges, the mindset that New Zealanders have had throughout the last two and a half years of the pandemic have been pragmatic and upbeat. But we need to continue to focus on addressing the difficulties, confronting the challenges that are in front of us, and more importantly, ensuring that as we try to rise the tide, everyone rises with it, rather than leaving some stranded at the bottom. With that, I'll close out of the doom and gloom for, uh, for a second, but very keen to now engage in not only some questions, but really a bit of back and forth, a bit of conversation about some of those new economic normals uh, and also what we're starting to see and what you're all starting to see in your own daily lives. Thank you very much,
2: Brad. And um, a very, very wide-ranging summary, everything from the brain drain with the uh, twenty to 29s as well as the waning of the Auckland, uh, Auckland experience, uh, if you can call it an experience, sometimes it seems like a penance, uh, uh, geopolitics, really good. So thank you. Look, the, this is the, the part where you start to ask some questions and uh, I'm sure things have been occurring to you as you've been listening to Brad. Um, now, the way to do that, if you can please do this, is go to your uh, reactions on your menus uh, and you put your hands up. That will order the questions in order and we'll get through um as you appear um, now what we'll be able to do is we'll see your names will be will uh, call on you uh, if you're muted could you unmute yourself so there will probably be a few car crash moments because this is a zoom event um, uh, and ask the question you've got um, brad uh, will respond as i said he, he he may well punt it back to you um so um so we're looking for an exchange uh, not just uh not just a tennis match uh, and uh, also you will get one supplementary um, because sometimes you need to follow up. but that's it. so <laughs> So just uh, accept that then we'll move on to someone else. So those are, those are the rules, the outline of things. Look, I'd, I'd like to ask um, uh, while people are putting stuff together. What do you think is going to happen with inflation? A lot of questions one of the questions I'm hearing from people is, Is inflation going to embed, like the sense of embedded inflation? Can you explain what that means? And also, what do you see as the likelihood of that happening?
1: Yeah, totally. And I think, I mean, the first place to start there is why why is inflation an issue in the first place? Now, I know that sounds a bit facetious. Um, in terms of, look, no one likes uh, prices going up, but actually we focus on trying to actually have prices go up, but at a steady level. The focus from the Reserve Bank is that you try to have roughly 2% inflation a year. That's enough that you can broadly adjust to it with people's wages and similar over time, and it's a comfortable balance between having enough tension in the economy to uh, both grow, but also figure out better ways to do things, but also not so much tension like you're seeing at the moment that actually you can't get anything done uh, and you have a huge amount of challenges. Now, if inflation becomes what economists call unanchored, if you can't plan for what inflation might be, then everyone starts to get a lot out of kilter. Because what will often happen is that if you know that or if you expect that prices are going to continue to rapidly increase at 6 7% a year, you're not going to wait around to spend. You're going to spend as much as you can now, because if you buy something later on, it's going to be more expensive. Now that adds to the amount of demand pressure in the economy. And at a time when we can't even do our current lot of work, if everyone starts to pour to the shops, even more, you have some real difficulties. As well as that, you have businesses that are going, well, look, if I think that prices are going to continue to massively increase in cost, I can't make those big investments. I don't know if I'm going to have the ability to actually pay it off in the future. So inflation is really damaging for uh, the economy's ability so to be stable.
2: That reduces the ability of business to meet demand. Absolutely. as uh, Or oh, pardon me, to meet, meet demand that is outstripping
1: it. Yep. Yep. And, 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 and just to, to actually answer your question, but I think it's an important mm-hmm. starter in terms of, What we are worried about at the moment is that even though you've got oil prices that are coming back, the very high level of inflation in the economy uh, is sort of a bit self-fulfilling. Once you see inflation go high, you expect it to remain high for a while. Uh, People are asking for wage rises of of inflation levels. That means that your business is having to absorb a 7% odd uh, wage increase. They have to pass that on at some point. And that means that, well, they'll have to put up their prices by about 7%, which means that the next time inflation comes out, it'll be even higher. And then people ask for even higher wage rises and similar. So it becomes very disruptive for both business accounts, but more importantly, for people's earning potential. Um, And realistically, until everyone is is so scared, if you will, that the Reserve Bank is going to hammer you with massive interest rate rises that you're too scared to put on cost increases, Things will likely go up. So, in my mind, I don't think you'll see inflation get a lot higher than where it currently is at that 7.3% annual rate, but I do think it will last at a persistently higher level for longer. And by that I mean I think inflation could still be above 6% by the end of this year, still above 3% by the end of 2023, uh, 20 and, and into 2024. So If it lasts longer, it's the sort of thing as well where unless I mention a negative number with inflation, nothing ever gets cheaper than what it is. And that's probably the more concerning thing is that anyone who's waiting for prices to go back to normal, you'll be waiting a while, which is a real challenge for households, again, particularly those who are just struggling to make uh, ends meet. Hmm.
2: Um, Okay, um, there we go, Shannon, a hand going up. So uh, if you could uh, unmute yourself and uh, go ahead. Thank you, welcome. Oh, Shannon, um, if you can just unmute, sorry, there we go. Oh, sorry. That's good.
3: Um, sorry, this doesn't follow on from what you were just talking about inflation, um, but I was just wondering if you think the pension age might move in New Zealand anytime soon, because um, one thing I kind of see is, I mean, we were sort of in the middle where we bought a house before it went crazy but I sort of see a younger generation and a low fertility rate who probably feel that they might want to own a house before they have children. And then I kind of see my parents' generation with rental property portfolios that have quite well built up, and then they're going to get a pension at 65. And they may have very, you know all the biggest properties and that's sounding like a vision. Bit... <laughs> I mean, we're, we're not in that position, but I just look at the people who might be looking to have children now. And um, I kind of see that as quite a lack I don't know. It just seems like a government money spent on people who don't really need it potentially until they turn 70, maybe they could continue to work and get a sickness benefit if they really needed it, as opposed yeah. to a pension.
1: All I would say is that I am bitter because I'm in that position. Uh, trust me. <laughs> and 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 look, I think I think it's so an just important. Don't sugar
2: the pills. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's it's. it's...
2: Brad's
1: really angry. <laughs> the, okay. Well, clearly keep <laughs> questions for the rest of the night. We'll just go with this one. No, I'm yeah, kidding. Yeah. Um, but look, you, you, you're absolutely right, and I think this is a wider challenge that we have. Let's deal with the super bit specifically first I i and, and I'm in two minds about this I, I definitely think it needs to increase and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that the amount of time that people are spending on a pension these days is considerably longer than in previous generations the fact that everyone says oh well, you can't uh, you know change the age you know people have, have locked that in we changed the age back in the 90s it went from 60 to 65 so to move it to maybe 67 at the least and like you say I'd, I'd probably go further to 70 actually isn't unprecedented More importantly, you're right in that we've actually got some big choices here over where we put our money because let's be quite frank about it, New Zealand super is paying old people to be old. Um, There is nothing more simple than that. And I say that because it's so expensive that we pay more for old people to be old than we do on education in this country. Now, part of that might be because, uh, or or a contributing cause, the reason that we don't get people that can do five plus five when they're in school. But look, there are some big challenges there. Now, to your wider point though, in terms of, um, you know, especially housing and similar, the two points I'd make there is that one, if you are getting to super age and you don't own a house, you will not be able to survive like that. Super is not effectively designed actually for you to still be making uh, repayments on a house and similar. So for those who don't have a house at retirement age, it's going to be incredibly difficult. The other thing uh, to to touch on there is is, um, the discussion about, you know, those who might have a number of rental properties and similar uh, from previous generations will increasingly, I think, start to define who does get a house and who doesn't. Not because it will have anything to do with affordability, but really because there's going to be a bunch of people who are able to inherit a house from their family uh, if they had a house. A lot of people who won't be able to uh, uh, inherit anything because there's nothing to inherit from. And so increasingly, again, unless we get uh, housing right, unless we think about those much longer term issues that we might not want to change the policy next year, but we might want to change it in five to 10 years time, those longer term issues have huge financial burdens for the country, but also importantly, some real distributional and social issues where we're going to create an increasingly socially divided society between the haves and the have nots. And that's already building. So Absolutely a challenge. Um, my thing is, as much as I think it's going to change, politicians of all stripes know that that's political suicide. They won't touch it. Um, and so I really worry that unless we're willing to confront those big issues, we will sort of wander further and further down the path until it is effectively too late.
2: Thank you very much, Brad, and uh, thank you, Shannon. And I I wonder in terms of uh, that, uh, that issue that I'm going to really put you on the spot here. It's like if we don't fix housing, how can we fix housing? Is there a way forward? Is there um, is it a concerted mixture of public and private? Uh, at the moment, uh, we all know the cost of jib is uh, is uh, prohibitive, etc., etc. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I, I think I think you've got to have the right level of of regulation and 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 settings and policy and funding sometimes to actually enable. Uh, the construction because look again it is a sort of a simple numbers game more more houses is, is going to be part of the equation um, because we can either lift houses or, or reduce the people that need them and, and the reducing people that need them there's not that's not really an option um, and, and I say that because in my mind there's two or three major bits there one is around the, the various regulations and similar the fact that if I go into a council and I want to build a house I seem to be treated more like a you know a, a prisoner on death row than than uh, you know someone who's who's being you know socially healthy Helping The country to build up our, our capital stock and 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 house someone um, means that you know the 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 time pressure, the amount of money that's spent, the fact that I have to get a tick box signed off to say that I've used the right colour paint, uh, and you know that I've planted the right thing out in front of my my new house, um, it, it, it's prohibitive. It, it means that we're not actually nearly as efficient. So overregulated. Overregulation, but the other big one is, is funding. Um, it's really expensive to put pipes in the ground and, and similar, and it means that everyone skirts around and doesn't want to do it. Um, we spend a lot of money you know, on on convention centres and other big sparkly things above ground, but we neglect uh, our, our literal foundations of our city. So I think some serious money from government to invest in our future, taking out effectively a mortgage so that we can actually have something good over time is, is going to be huge. But I think then a lot comes down to how do we get out of the way then from a, from a government point of view and actually allow for private developers to do a lot more. Government papers today uh, showing that Kaianga Aura is expected to not be able to service its debt over time suggests that maybe getting the government to build everything and fix all of our problems um, doesn't completely work. You've got buildings, uh, building businesses across the country who know exactly what they're doing and are, and are keen to do it. Um, I think sometimes, again, once we've got those settings right, once mm. we've got the infrastructure in the ground, sort of need to step back and say, here is some land, go build.
2: Thanks, Brad. Uh, Rebecca McLeod?
4: Thanks, Brad. Uh, my question was, um, why why do you think that the inflation rate is is not likely to go higher than it currently is at seven point three
1: percent? Part of it is mathematics, um, and and I say that only because bit of mental maths for the moment. Your current seven point three percent in the June quarter is on top of a three point three percent in the June twenty twenty one quarter. Now, to get something more, if it, to get 7.4% in the next quarter, you'd have to do that on top of a 4.9% increase from last year. So it's quite a gap that you'd have to move up. And I say that because in recent weeks, we've seen fuel prices pulling back. Now, I'm not saying that they are cheaper, but they're cheaper than they were when we recorded them in the June quarter, so that part has come back. What we've also started to hear from people is not that things are getting cheaper, but that some of the cost increases that have come through over the last six months to a year either aren't coming forward as much or or are starting to slow down um, in their pace. So, again, I'm not saying it's sort of over, but our feeling is that it might not be accelerating a huge amount further. Equally, I don't think it sort of immediately falls. I mean, a lot of the inflation we've currently got is baked in into the numbers, because you've got, uh, you know, the fact that uh, you know, let's put aside jib costs for the moment, but your transport costs uh, are always a little bit lagged. You know, the fact that I talked to you about shipping prices, well it's very unlikely to, that a shipper goes in and just shows up on Monday morning and says, I'll take the spot price, please. They're locked in for a bit. And so those sort of forward contracts mean that inflation will remain high for a little bit longer. But again, as those other pressures around fuel and similar start to tail off, and we've seen food and commodity prices globally start to trend in the same way, it says that, again, we're not expecting that inflation goes down, but we do expect that it doesn't have the same sort of uh, bullet train of, excuse me, effect that we've seen in recent times. I'm, I'm out of interest. Are you sort of feeling like it could well then go higher, or or, or at least sort of maintain more momentum?
4: Uh, I'm a little bit doom and gloom when I look around the world at the moment and see all of the various forces at work, including the geopolitical forces that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess I'm just curious because it seems that what you're saying is that is that inflation seems to be kind of self-corrected within within the private sector, like. And businesses and industries seem to kind of correct the problems as they arise that contribute to inflation. Um, is that how you see it, or is it also a combination of Reserve Bank and other um, sort of uh, regulate regulatory inter- interference that that curves inflation?
1: Yeah, I, I I I think it's a bit of both. And I mean, the the feedback loop, if you will, is um, has has both a lot of time lags, but but also sort of a lot of circularity. You know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Now I say that because. As we've seen inflation go higher, we've seen central banks around the world that have massively raised uh, interest rates. And the very simple transmission there is that if you've got a mortgage, it's now a whole lot more expensive. You haven't got as much money uh, as that additional expense in your wage increases in in recent times. That means that something in the budget's got to give. And so effectively, because we're trying to do this much with that much stuff, we can't lift supply and find more people or more jib, but we can lower demand a bit. And so I think that's what you're seeing across the world. Um, People are worried about a global recession. So they're saying, well, you know, no one's going to need quite as much fuel if we go into a recession. So I'll pull back my expectations on price. Uh, The same around food, because we have one, been able to lift supply, you know, some grain has been coming out of uh, Ukraine in recent times. But also people are going, well, I'm not going to be paying quite as much for you know dairy products or meat or similar because, man, I'm having to watch my, my supermarket budget a lot more. I'm not going to be bu- buying the premium uh, premium stuff I'm going to have to pull back. So over time, you are seeing a bit of a reduction um, coming forward there, but it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I just talked about the likes of dairy and meats and similar. High commodity prices have been a major contributor to New Zealand's economy over the last few years. Now, them going down might mean that we don't pay quite as much for yogurt at the shops, which is a win, but it also means not as much for our exporters. So it, it, it really is a bit of a challenge um, as as we see it. I guess, um, like, like I say, the fact that it stops going up at such a silly rate as it's been going is cold comfort from the fact that even if it does go you know, as expectations around, you know, still 6% by the end of the year, still 3% out in a few, that's still incredibly painful, because it means that again, what you're seeing at the moment is is still going to go up in price, it just might not go up in price at the same leaps and bounds, maybe slightly smaller shuffles, but it still goes up.
2: Mm-hmm. So, so what? The the tone has been set. It's just the music's not going to be playing as quickly, yep. so to speak. Um, thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that, Richard. Look, I want to touch on something that that you mentioned in your, um, in your the, the time of the. The, my, the 20, my
1: ride? <laughs> Yes, you're,
2: you're you're ranting ranting peroration, um, which was the brain drain, uh, and, and we we've, we've been doing this um this series of lectures throughout um throughout the Upper North Island. And there was a great question in Hamilton asked by someone uh, late twenties, early thirties, just bought a house, talking about the brain drain, and uh, she said to you, "Why should I stay in New Zealand? Why should young people stay in New Zealand?" I want to repeat that question to you.
1: And, and look, I'll give you the same answer that I broadly gave in Hamilton, which is, I seriously don't know. I, I don't know what we're putting in front of people that contributes a strong enough response. Um, is it a house that now costs me 10 times my income, uh, or and, and that will I'll have to spend a third of my income each and every year for the next 25 years paying off? Um, doesn't sound all that attractive. The fact that the sort of jobs that I'm getting at the moment, I'm having to work longer hours than ever before and already having worked some of the longest hours in the developed world for what are comparatively fairly low wages. Mm. Um, the fact that, you know, uh, still when it comes to living costs, I'm not saying that they're good uh, or that they're, you know, particularly um, worse than other countries, but we also know that inflation is, is hitting hard. Now, the focus from a lot of people, uh, I think, is that um, – their family situation, their social interactions here in New Zealand is often a key driver. And I think what will be different this time around is that um, I, I I don't think there is any way in the short term to provide a convincing argument for why young people should stay. My greater concern is that I don't know if we can provide a convincing argument either, though, about why they should come back. And that, I think, is, is again, one of the greatest challenges, but also biggest opportunities for the country, is that as people are leaving overseas, as they're you know, developing new work skills, greater international connections and, and a different way of working, how do we say to them, come back to New Zealand, have your time overseas, but bring your skills back. We want them. We want to provide you know, the strong lifestyle opportunities, the social and family interactions that you can have. Uh, but I don't see that to be nearly as strong um, as what we've had it before.
2: Mm. I would I would
1: submit that the
2: um, that there is a civic and public culture here that is less corrosive than in the larger, more more thrilling metropolitan areas of the world. But we need to be able to make an economic value proposition uh, that people can have a flourishing life here uh, as as well. And um, people may return for sentimental reasons, uh, but they'll be disgruntled if their if uh, if their their living standard is not being is is, is not improving. I Absolutely. think that's as as they have kids, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yes, Marcus. Hi Brad.
5: Hi Tim. Um... Brad, I wanted to ask you about the um, the comment you made that uh, getting back to inflation, that you only learned about it for two weeks at university um, and that they thought that it was dead in the 70s and 80s. Um, that amazes me that it's it seemed to be you're saying that they uh, your lecturers thought that it couldn't come back or it was impossible. Um, could, could you just expand on that a bit more? And also, do you think that that sort of thinking encouraged, encouraged politicians and, and reserve bankers to be so free with the expansion of the money supply in the last decade.
1: Yeah I, I think I think part of it is to, to that last point is because we've sort of uh, forgotten the lessons of how painful inflation has been. Now now some people are very aware of it, but I don't think it's something that we actually have kept and uh, focus as much. To be fair, part of the reason I think we lost, it, and part of the reason I probably didn't learn about it at university, is because for the decade after the global financial crisis, it wasn't a thing. New Zealand was desperately struggling to stimulate the economy to even achieve two percent uh, inflationary growth. So we sort of went, man, we, we we've sort of we've, we've overdone it. We we can barely achieve inflation now, let alone you know worry about it getting away. Um, and so uh, that, that, I think, sort of um, put us in a, a sort of uh, bit of a dream state where we weren't thinking about it as much. Coming into the pandemic, the experience then was if even in ec- good economic times we struggle to generate inflation, how in bad economic times are people actually going to think about lifting prices? And, and th- that's genuinely the thought, right? At the start of COVID, everyone thought, well, if we're cutting workforces, if fewer people have jobs and they don't have incomes and similar what business is going to be silly enough to raise their price, they're immediately going to, you know, get no one who's keen to come in. Uh, But in fact, the opposite was true. Because we stimulated so much activity, we had very high levels of demand, you know, people stayed at home for four and a half weeks and had some serious cash to burn. But the global supply chain disruptions and similar meant that we didn't have nearly as much stuff to sell. Um, And so I think there's a a greater level of disruption that's come through there that we haven't um, fully encountered. Now, in fairness, you know, um, uh, reflection and, and, and hindsight is twenty twenty, 20 um, but we, you know, were very, very difficult to achieve at the time. The difficulty, as I said at the moment, is that we hopefully have figured out that what we did during the pandemic uh, over the last two and a half years overcooked it. We sort of, you know, we we're very, very keen to, to cut, but we weren't nearly as keen to correct our mistakes when they came forward. I'm worried, though, that we haven't necessarily learned those lessons. You know, where is that review of how we've gone over the last few years so that if... COVID 2.0 hits us tomorrow, would we react any differently? At the moment, I'm not sure that we would.
2: Okay, so let's imagine that scenario for a moment. Um, you are the governor of the Reserve Bank, Brad Olson. Governor Olson, what do you do?
1: I certainly don't print more money. Um, and, and I say that because what we saw with that printing of money was uh, not only that we sort of did it without regard of, of, of how badly and how ingrained it might be. Again, we printed... 65 70 billion dollars uh, of cash over the course of a year and a bit we'll be paying that off probably for the next 30 so it's very very easy to load the credit card incredibly difficult to pay off
2: did we did we print too much you- Belief.
1: absolutely um and by fact, what
2: by what percentage?
1: oh probably 90 percent or so and, and i say that because you look at what effect it had on the markets and i don't necessarily think it had the as much of an effect as people wanted now there's two bits to printing money one is that you want to have enough stability in the markets that they don't gum up so back on i think it was something like the 25th of, of no it was just it was the 18th of march or something markets were dysfunctional no one was bidding no one was selling the markets were in a a screwed up position and so the bank as they do and have done a number of times sort of they buy a few things. They just sort of put a little bit more, more money in the system, but we're talking five dollar notes rather than you know hundred dollar notes at that point. And so I think you've got to do that ungumming. But then further than that, you know, the fact that of that sixty five or so billion dollars that we've printed, we've already got a mark to market loss of seven billion bucks. Seven billion bucks could buy us a lot. Mm. Um, and so I, I, I think we've got to be a lot more careful about that. In fairness, if, if, if we had the same circumstances and without any other thinking, I probably would have cut the official cash rate as much as the Reserve Bank did. But importantly, if I'm willing to be gung-ho on the down, and I would have been, I also would have looked at inflation getting out of control last year and been a bit more gung-ho on the upside. And I remember in August last year calling for the Reserve Bank to raise the official cash rate by 50 basis points. We could see it starting to build, and we said it each and every month all the way up until April this year when the Reserve Bank finally pulled the trigger. So, again, I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to go, go hard and go early, but you go hard and go early on both the down and the up, and you can't be choosy about which one.
2: You may get another term. Okay. Thought, yeah, you've signed up. Shannon, you're supplementary. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, sorry. Am I
1: allowed another
3: question? <laughs> yeah. um, That's uh, fine. I was just making a comment. I don't know if it's a valid one or not. Um, Just thinking about low productivity because of sickness. Um, I imagine that might be among especially employees who actually do things like make things or uh, pack orders. Um, I I just wonder if that's going to be an ongoing problem because we've really changed our culture of sickness. Um, I was just discussing it with uh, my our daughter's swim teacher and I said I'm sorry she can't come for the second week in a row she's got a slight cough and she said isn't it funny we used to always have kids with a slight cough and they still came <laughs> and I just feel that you're so judged now for having eat like oh will she cough even once in the day will she better in this you know whatever it is and I can just see that that's a great excuse for employees as well who don't actually quite like to have a day off and um, I just wonder how long it's going to go on with with a low productivity because you have half your staff gone um especially if maybe they've not got the best work ethic um i mean i hopefully most people do but you did have a staff which would like to be off it could be a really sort of an ongoing issue potentially
1: yeah no absolutely and and look you're right i mean you your um your expl- explanation you know of the swim teacher and similar is 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 very on message because look as someone that went down with bronchitis hard a few weeks back i looked like a leper just about anywhere i went you know mm-hmm. it really was um what what what's this guy doing? How's he allowed out of the house? Why isn't he in a bio suit? Um, and I mean, I was testing for COVID just about every you know second hour to make sure I wasn't infectious. But you're right, you know, back in the day, I'd just about have to be on an ambulance stretcher before you take me out of the office, sort of thing. So, thing things have changed around. I I think the difficulty at the moment is it's a great
2: time to be a hypochondriac. Yeah yeah just yeah. They're in their ascendancy.
1: I, I I hope I hope I hope those people have a fair bit of um, sick leave though, because I and, and, and this I think is going to be the challenges that. It, what interests me is that you do have a lot more people that are having to take their healthcare a lot more seriously and, and sort of operate in a very different way because of, you know, the changing social focus that we we, we have. Um, and so that will definitely harm productivity because you just don't have people to keep momentum up. You know, the example I gave before of, you know, having something like 10 out of your 40 workforce each and every day, you, you just can't do things nearly as fast. And, and so that is disruptive, and the flow-on effects, I think, are even harder, because, again, by the time you don't complete your deadline, means the next person along the chain also has to reset their deadline, and they've got other work to do as well, and so on and so forth. The greater risk, I think, though, is that we know that because there's so much work to go on in the economy, People have been working really hard to try and keep it going. Now, at the start of this year, uh, despite there being at the peak of Omicron, 300,000 New Zealanders having to be at home isolating or as close household contacts, the total number of hours worked across the entire economy was just 0.2% below normal. And what we saw was basically for every one person that was off sick or, or, or doing not a lot at home, you had a lot of people that were putting in a much, much larger number of hours to try and keep things going. Now, you can only burn the candle at both ends for so long before the candle was no more. Um, and I think what, I, what I'm worried about there is the fact that if you've got a bunch of people that are off sick and if you're working your current workforce harder to make up for it, those people, you know, if they're not – eating and sleeping quite as well because they're working those longer hours, they're actually going to be more susceptible to getting sick and, and, you know, being further disrupted, tired, not nearly as productive, not nearly as engaged over time. So there's a real sort of, you know, burnout risk, I think, that emerges. And, and part of that as well is because, again, because of how stressed things are, people haven't been taking leave. Now, the first two years of the pandemic, you could understand that. You know, people have been going, well, I I literally can't go anywhere, so what's the point? Uh, This year, though, you're seeing people are saying, I'm too busy to take leave. You know, there are no slots available, if you will, and analysis that we've done looking at some data from Australia suggests that people's leave balances uh, have increased a further 27% in the last year. So there's some people, there were some huge liabilities on the book who haven't had a break um, and are at risk of, of of coming down. Now, I'll give you the, the perfect example of that. My first break since COVID-19, I took about three weeks ago, uh, went down to Stewart Island. Uh, my body thought, great, I've got a, you know, an opportunity to chill out and immediately decided that bronchitis on Stewart Island in the middle of winter with no nurse or doctor nearby was a great idea. Um, so and, and I say that because I think there are actually probably a lot of people in that position who are, you know, at at, at risk, if you will, of, of the body saying, right, you're gonna the time out is now. So Yes, a a big disruption and and probably wider than that. How do we start to cope with that in terms of, you know, again, there's only so much sick leave. Do you give everyone special dispensation? Uh, You know, if there are a a COVID contact, what happens when those reinfections start to come through? There are a lot of issues, I think, that we're still uh, to look through in terms of how on earth do we cope with what is still a health challenge as well as an economic one.
2: Mm. And a psychological one. And a psychological one. Also. Thank you very much, Shannon. Uh, Sam Rebner. Hi, Brad
0: and Tim.
5: Thanks so much for being part of this fantastic evening. Um, With the high cost of living, a lot of families, I think, um, feel pressure for the parents in those families to either be working multiple jobs or for both parents to be working jobs to keep up with that cost of living. And it it seems reasonably obvious that that has some negative outcomes, that it it could have negative outcomes on the children of those families whose parents are around a lot less. Um, and negative outcomes on the quality of life for those parents that are having to work rather than than perhaps spend that time in their family. What can New Zealand do to address those problems? You know, to to address the the economic the negative impacts on the family that that our economy is is currently having.
1: Yeah, no, it, it, it's a really good question, especially because I think. Um... To sort of extend the problem a little bit, it's not only, I think, you know, your mum and dad and similar, but increasingly we're hearing more young people who are either not going to school as much or similar, not because they're truant, but because they're going to work because they need to make some money for, for the family to keep things going. So, um, you know, that disruption coupled with, like you say, the challenges mm-hmm. around parents, particularly with younger children and, and, and trying to bring them up, um, is is a huge disadvantage. Um, I, I sort of think that, that part of it is around how we... Um, the times and hours that we work, because I think uh, let's divorce inflation from it for a second because that's something that I think we're going to struggle to correct in this specific scenario, that there's a broader way you have to fix inflation. Unfortunately, that's through mortgage rates and similar in, in, in general um, general terms. But I think as well, it's thinking about how do we uh, adjust further the way that, that we work so that if people are working, there's also an ability still to do um, as much of that sort of family interaction as possible. Now I say that because I think we're also thinking about it in different ways um and I remember at the start of the pandemic looking at the numbers and we saw quite clearly that mothers uh, and, and 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 particularly single mothers and similar uh, were hard hit uh, with the number of people on a sole parent benefit increasing quite considerably. Now, what got me there was talking to some businesses who are, again, they're struggling for staff at the moment. Uh, one large food retailing business sort of said, well, what we're doing is we're making sure there's a different shift schedule. So that there's a shift that starts at about sort of 9.30 or so in the morning and ends at about 2.30 or so in the afternoon so that you can drop the kids at school, uh, go in and, and, and work for a few hours, earn earn money, and then uh, you know pick up the kids after school and look after them. So I think there's... there's um, Needs must, and I say that because the reality at the moment is that we can't click our fingers and and make inflation go away. But if we can find a better way to balance uh, the need for people to earn more income, but also ensure they have that strong family balance, um, is important. As well as that, though, I think there is there is that greater focus on how does the how could the government use its tax and transfer settings to enable those who are looking after children uh, to have a, a little bit more to keep themselves going now. Is that a, a change round or a re, uh, redoing, if you will, of the likes of working for families? Is it a, a change or a refocus in how Best Start is provided for those with with young children and similar? Um, I think, given that the government's happy to whack a billion dollars on the credit card uh, for fuel tax relief for those who both need it the most and those who don't need it at all, um, providing a little bit more to those who are, you know, bringing up the future generations of the country can't be a particularly hard exercise. Um, for them so I'd, I'd be I'd be um, you know particularly on board with at least reviewing it out of interest Sam I mean um, it's a sort of hard policy question to come up with on the fly but I mean have you got a, a particular view on what you would do as well and I'm just interested in terms of keen to crowdsource if there's some good ideas going
5: well I, like I think to speak into um, a reality for for my family where I'm the sole income earner I'm interested to um here you mentioned the tax thing because, you know, one of the things in my mind is that my income is taxed at the same rate as the sole income earner for a family so that um, my wife is able to stay home with our children as it would be if if we were both earning an income. And, yes, I mean, certainly if, you, if you're going to create opportunities for parents to be spending more time with children, that would strike me as one potential um way to do that to recognize where families are doing that, that I don't know, perhaps a different tax rate applies.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, what, what, if, if I can be so unkind as to, to jump on the idea and, and spin it in my own way, I sort of almost see what what I'm almost hearing there is like a, a household tax rate, if you will, rather than just an income, a personal individual income tax rate, which is where you know having a child and, and having an offset or something for for having children uh, might well be be worthwhile, and possibly though trying to adjust it at, at source, so instead of having to wait till the end of the year, if you will, you you have that ability to sort of have it running through the year like you have with working for family. So look, I. I, I genuinely think it's not the worst uh, idea I've heard in the world. And like I say, given that, um, you know, fuel taxes are chucked on the credit card, in fact, it's the sort of thing where, again, that, 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 that's a um, it's a longer-term solution as well because we're going to encounter these sort of challenges again and again over time, different reasons, but the same outcomes in terms of people under pressure. So I think, you know, there's certainly, um, you know, leaks to that idea. So um, I, I will mull that over, uh, in, in, in a sense, as we go forward.
2: Yeah, well, given given that you have now been granted by this Assembly a second term as Governor of yeah. the Reserve Bank, you can absolutely articulate for G- that.
1: Given given that's tax, are you guys willing to make me Finance Minister sort of thing as well, or have I got, have I got to earn that one still?
2: Mm, we'll just see how you go with the Reserve Bank gig. Listen, we are coming to the end of, of the hour and very mindful that people have other places to be, uh, other things to do. I'd like to just for you to lay out two scenarios for um, for Aotearoa New Zealand. The first, uh, in the, looking in To the future, say the next five years, the negative scenario, Um, and after that, because Maxim is a hopeful organisation, the positive scenario. Given that we have been describing the new economic normal, where could it go negatively? But where could we go positively? Where might the opportunities be?
1: Yeah, and I think I mean the negative one is is looking at all of the challenges that we've uh, that we face and that I've outlined. Uh, And sort of just watching as they continue to snowball, particularly, and I'll sort of start with the likes of education that, you know, if we don't correct that in terms of ensuring that young uh, Kiwis across the country have a good level of um, foundational support you know, all the way from quality early childhood through to, you know, having the the right supports through primary and secondary school. And then importantly, choice and and, and a a greater level of targeting when it comes to tertiary education. We know that we need more nurses, we know we need more smart engineers and similar, uh, but we don't seem to be willing to actually make the investments into those industries to produce those better outcomes. We've train the same number of nurses um, each and every year for the last decade. And I don't think anyone would argue uh at the need to do more. Don't, that. don't
2: worry, there's an episode of Shortland Street. Yeah, yeah, of course.
1: It. Um yeah. That'll that'll that'll, that'll help. Uh, so so I think education's an important critical one. I think investing more in infrastructure so that we're actually able to build uh that scale that we can move things around faster so that we can work smarter, not harder. Now that's infrastructure from you know your bridges and your uh you know roads and similar but through to uh, investments in industry so that we can you know get Machines, if you will, into the right position to do, uh, you know, some of the work that is either risky or costly, and then redeploy people into smarter uh, areas where, you know, they're interacting with people, they're making uh, more expensive widgets that we can then sell at a premium, both here and overseas. Um, but the other bit, I guess, is is thinking about, um, you know, how do we we get uh, that focus on where New Zealanders are willing to park their cash? Because at the moment, everyone's keen to park it into the housing market, um, and Look, as great as a house is, it doesn't do much day to day. It's great shelter, but in terms of investment, I think we've got a huge amount of success as a country in terms of our um, uh, our ability to... Uh, trial new businesses and, and and then go forth, and at the moment I'm worried we're not sort of going into those places uh, so in, in my mind, uh, if we sort of continue to recognize that there are challenges, do nothing about them and wait for another generation at some point to look after them. we could well find ourselves uh, you know with our pants around our ankles a lot sooner than we we think. The more optimistic view I think is that we take regard for the fact that not only is the economy changing but people's social interactions are changing too um, provide some support around that so how do we get people into uh, you know our our CBDs and into our cities that aren't purely transactional if I want to buy something now I can do it online most of the time but I can't get that same person to person interaction that Tim and I can have here tonight through the screen And although it's lovely to see you all there uh, virtually I'd also love to meet you all in person at some point because trust me the chat afterwards would be fantastic um i can i I can
2: vouch for that he's great on screen but off screen he's even better
1: That, 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 that's, a, that's a ringing endorsement so I I think a lot of it is around recognising those changes actually fronting up to them and saying okay we need to put the right uh, people in the right places we need to work on how do we attract people back to New Zealand what's our value proposition as a country uh, you know we've relied on clean and green and similar for a long time and the fact that we're small and we're able to be nimble um, are we still actually utilising those or are they just taglines at the bottom of uh, sort of a old outdated logo uh, so refocusing on that refocusing on what's most important to us at the foundations both literally with uh, you know the likes of our infrastructure and summer but also socially and economically in terms of uh, always having that focus on how do we instill entrepreneurial uh, desire in people so they can be aspirational for the future but also protecting you know what is so important at home so you've got those good foundations you pass on that regard and that importantly there's something to um, I guess you know live for at the end of the, the the nine to five grind because increasingly we are working on hours. We're focusing so much on you know, uh, the hustle that I think sometimes we, we lose sight of what's most important. So yeah. if we get those things right, if we start to actually uh, move on the challenges that we know we have and turn those challenges into opportunities, we'll be in a good place. If we languish and watch those challenges build and build until they are too insurmountable, uh, the tsunami will be upon us before we can do much about it.
2: So this is, this is a time to, um, to take, let's take the, let's regard this as an opportunity to not coast, but to to actually seize the nettle and start to make some changes. Interesting too, you'll focus on there's something a bit more than the nine to five grind. I started talking about the importance of people uh, and 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 uh, those those interrelations, civil society. Uh, I think we're seeing an increasing fragmentation in New Zealand, and we need to glue ourselves back together. And that's yeah.
1: And, and the only other thing I think is is because everyone sort of asks, well, you know, what why now? And and that's because the perfect time to make change was yesterday, and the second uh, best time is is today. The longer we leave it, the harder it becomes, the more entrenched those issues are and and so uh, and, and the more expensive they become. So it really is a fact of, you know, the longer we leave it, the harder things will get. And so the sooner we do it, the easier they'll be.
2: There we go. And on that note, I will say thank you, Brad Olson. And thanks to all of you. Uh, Maxim, we are intending to podcast this. So if you said something and you have a problem with the fact that you might end up on a verbal, it's a vocal podcast, there's no visuals. So, I mean, by the way, you all look amazing. I'm just FYI. But uh, if you have an issue, don't hesitate to just note that down in the chat and we can uh, remove anything that you don't, don't, uh, one of your questions, but your questions have certainly all been uh, uh, better than typical podcast standards. So congratulations. Brad, thank you for everything uh, you brought. Um, I will just note that Brad is also a licensed wedding celebrant. So if you want to stick around and tie the knot, that's fine too. But if not, we'll say ka kite from Maxim and thank you for joining.
0: Good evening. Thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us and keep up with the rest of our research and analysis of politics and policy in New Zealand, you can sign up on the homepage of our website to get our monthly forum email and invitations to future Maxim Institute events. You can search and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the team at Maxim, Matewa, wa, goodbye for now.